All right, all right. Once again, good morning. Thank you all for being here today. My name is Pastor Ryan. With the Christmas season fast approaching today, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to study some people that played an important role in the lead up to Christmas, but they were just average people like you and me. And we like to do this. I like to do this because this is what I've done throughout my uh, faith walk is people that I read about in the Bible, Mary, Joseph, the disciples, Peter, John, I tend to put them on a pedestal and raise them up a lot higher, and I see all the stuff they did, and I just think, I could never do that. Uh, how, can I re- how can I match that? But the truth is, those people are listed in the Bible because they're just like us. They are humans. They have faults. There's things they do good. There's things they do poorly. There's things somewhere in between, but they're there to help us, to help us grow, and that's what we're going to do. All right. What makes our God so great is he can do amazing things through average people like you and me, people with faults, people with fears. And so that's, what's, that's why this is here. That's why they're in the story uh, that we're going to talk about. So this weekend, we're going to study Zachariah and Elizabeth. And those are the parents of a man named John the Baptist, if you've ever heard of. And next weekend, we're going to study Mary and Joseph. And again, what I think you're going to get, what's interesting is you're going to get to see the story unfold, the Christmas story, through their eyes. What they saw, what they experienced, again, their ups and downs. Uh, mainly, we're going to see it through their imperfect eyes. So like we do, when I, whenever I teach, let's go straight to the Bible. Let's look at Luke chapter 1. That's where we're going to start reading from. Luke chapter 1, verse 5. If you don't have your Bible, you can certainly use your phone or your iPad. That's what I do mostly nowadays anyway. But if you don't, that's fine. The Bible verses will be on the screen above my head. So Luke chapter 1, verse 5. This is how it starts out. In the time of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. So right off the bat, Luke throws in some important information that is actually quite relevant to the story. When we read this today, it may not seem that important or that big of a deal, But we need to remember uh, that Luke and the other authors of the Bible put details like this in there for a reason. Every little piece, everything he just said is important, even if we don't realize it right away. So what I like to do is fill in the blanks so that we understand, we see the bigger part of the story, what's happening. But it also makes what eventually happens with Jesus Christ, why he came into the world, that much more special. So let's start off with the first guy listed, King Herod. You guys heard that name before? Herod, right? We've all probably heard that name, but there's actually a total of four Herods that are listed in the New Testament. Different rulers took that same name because they were part of the same dynasty. And if you took the same name, it, you try, what you're trying to do is cement that you are the next legitimate ruler. Kingdoms, if they didn't think they had a legitimate ruler, they tended to revolt and have all kinds of problems. So when you see Herod, sometimes it's a different Herod than what you read in a different part of the Bible. Right? Now, King Herod, the one we just read about, he was the first. He's also called Herod the Great. A little bit about his background, he was this, actually the son of a high-ranking political official in the Hasmonean dynasty. And the Hasmoneans eventually got into trouble and had some civil unrest with Rome. And Rome wanted someone to kind of quell things. So Herod was actually quite cunning. He chose to side with not his own people, the Romans. The Romans then made him king, a client king, because they could trust him and still do his bidding. And that's how he got there. Now, Herod as a person, while he was politically cunning, he was not a good guy at all. He was paranoid. He was constantly worried that someone was going to take his throne. So he actually ended up killing his own wife. Uh, but don't, I don't think he worried too much. He had nine others. Uh, he killed four of his own children because he thought they were a threat to his throne. And at one point, his wife's own brother, he made the high priest. But then they had a falling out, and he had his men drowned him uh, in the river. So... Herod is an awful guy. 
He's also Herod, the one we, that we read about with the story of the three wise men, and they go to the king and tell him about a baby being born in Bethlehem. That's him. He was also king when Mary and Joseph fled to Egypt, and they remained there until the king died, and then they returned. That was that same Herod. So he was a significant figure in the early, early uh, part of Jesus' story. But that gives us a little bit of background on what's happening. Now, the rest of verse 5 tells us about the lineage of John the Baptist's parents, uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah is listed as being a descendant of King Abijah. Again, he was one of the kings of Israel, so he comes from a very impressive line. His wife Elizabeth was a descendant of Aaron, the brother of Moses. So she can trace her lineage right back to Moses and Aaron. Both very significant, impressive lineages within the Israelite community. Now Luke put this in there. It's an important, he did this to highlight something about John the Baptist. John the Baptist was not going to be just some random upstart. Some local dude named John who decided he wanted to take on the religious establishment and make a name for himself. Quite the contrary. John's family line came from kings, came from Moses and Aaron. So he met the requirements to speak for God. And his teachings, his challenges to the religious community were going to carry that much more weight. And the people in the community, the the Israelite community, would listen to him more because of who he was and who he came from. So it mattered a great deal to those people back then. So now that we know a little bit about the lineage, Luke is going to tell us more about Zechariah and Elizabeth as people. Again, the details matter, and this is what he wrote in verse 6 and 7. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. That's a heavy-duty word, blamelessly. We're going to talk about that again in a minute. But, verse 7 says, they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. So when you read this for the first time, sometimes those details can kind of, we can gloss over them, not pay that much attention. But again, everything was there for a purpose. It says both were righteous and observed all God's command, again, were blameless. This is important because of what Luke tells us next. They were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. So what Luke is doing He's making a very solid point. He's actually giving them credit, kudos, respect for something that most people at the time would have held against God. They would have had a small grudge for, being childless. Is that what he's saying? Is Zachariah and Elizabeth, they worshiped God, they followed his laws, and they were blameless all the while their entire lives. Not one child were unable to conceive. What he's saying is most people at that time would have at least a little bit in the back of their head going, yeah, but why God? Why God? Why? And, and throw a little slack God's way. <clears throat> He's saying they didn't do that. They were completely separate. They were all this stuff, blameless, blah, but they were childish. Again, he's giving them credit for something most people would have done. He's saying they kept those things completely separate. They simply followed God 100%, and they were blameless. Again, that's huge. That's a big word. Even though they had all this other stuff going on, they never mixed the two. They were completely separate in their minds all the days of their life. It's huge. Now, the other reason Luke makes a big deal about their advanced age is he's highlighting the impossibility of what's about to happen. It's not like they're in their late 40s or 50s where you can still have children, not even in maybe early 60s. I know you're kind of pushing it. Go with me. He's saying, I know it's always kind of funny, but that's what he's saying. He's saying they were well advanced in their years, late 70s, 80s, maybe even 90s. He's saying, listen, it's just not possible anymore. So what's about to happen is because God is going to specifically intervene. That's what he's saying. 
Now, the next part of our story talks about Zechariah and what he's doing when he finds out that his wife will become pregnant. Let's read that in verses 8 to 10. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple, the temple of the Lord, and burn incense. And when the time came for the burning, of, when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. So this is kind of cool. It tells us Zechariah's division was on duty to serve as priest. So this means that Zechariah came from a certain family line that was allowed to serve as priest. So if you knew your Old Testament history, not just be, if you were an Israelite, it didn't mean that you could serve as one of the priests. You had to be from a certain division, a certain family line. That was the only line that was allowed to serve. So he was part of that line. Now, some experts have, have um, estimated that by the time of Jesus, there could have been as much as 20,000 men that qualified for that, that fit into that category to serve as a priest for a period of time. So what they did was they instituted a series of lots, like a little lottery, your name got pulled, you were in that line, you could serve. And so that's what happened. He was chosen. His name got pulled, and now he was actually serving. Um, this would have been a very high honor for him. He would have loved to do this. He would take a lot of pride and make sure he'd done it right. And again, remember the Lord told us that he was blameless. He followed God's laws and decrees. Now here's where things start to get interesting. Verse 10 tells us, at the time they were burning incense, all the people gathered together outside and started praying. Now, if you remember from our study of the book of Exodus, incense, when they burned it in the temple, it represented the prayers of the people going up to the Lord. It was described as a sweet smell to the Lord. So it's no mistake, and I think this is just fabulous, that at the time that the people knew the incense was being burned is when they all gathered together outside and started to pray. So literally, while the incense, the smoke was rising, people were actually praying together outside. Very cool, very intentional, and that's what they were doing. This is where the story really gets interesting. It's at this point is when Zechariah gets a visitor. Verses 11 to 13. It says, Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. So again, all the details here matter. The angel doesn't just appear and stand anywhere, right? He just doesn't kind of saunter in. Hey, Zechariah, good to see you, man. Hey, hey, hey. What does he do? He stands on the right side of the altar of incense. And biblically speaking, anytime on the right side is always the place of high honor, the place of respect. So right off the bat, the angel appears. This is the altar on the right side of the altar of incense, the altar where the prayer is going up. He stands to the right of that. Very cool. And that's what he's doing. That's what it represents. But what happens next is what usually happens when an angel appears to a human being. It says the person is gripped with fear, struck with fear. I want to pause and get a little context here. This is Zachariah. We already said this is not some average guy named Ryan who just kind of like, hey, I'm going to go burn some stuff in the temple today. Zachariah came from the line of kings in Israel. He was worthy to serve as priest. His lot was chosen. He knew what he was doing. He was in the temple. He wasn't in the United He was in the church here in Sebastian. Where was he? He was in Jerusalem in the temple, burning, alt, burning uh, incense on the altar, right? The people are outside praying. If there's one place it sounds like it's kind of reasonable for an angel maybe to appear, like you're like, that's getting in the ballpark, right? That's good. An angel appears. And what does he do? He's terrified. 
absolutely terrified, right? He is freaking out. He's scared, gripped with fear. And the question is, why? Why? And this is how mine works. If that dude gets scared, what about the rest of us? I mean, that's the guy that should be at least like, oh, yeah, hey, that's an angel. Hey, the incense, perfect timing, right? Didn't, nothing. Everything about him and what he knew and his, out the window. He's just an average guy, terrified, standing in front of an angel. And that's what's happening. And the reason is, we can assume in that moment, his humanness, everything about him, that he's imperfect, that he's scared, he's standing before a being that is completely holy and far more powerful, and he's absolute dust, and it's terrifying. And that's actually what's going. He's in such awe and fear. God himself is so holy and bright beyond anything we can imagine. Just his messenger brings fear to us. And that's what happened. That's what's unfolding. And then this is what happens next. The angel tells Zechariah, as most angels do if you're, when you study the Bible, when they, read, when they meet somebody, they say, do not be afraid. So it's a command, don't be afraid. He says, your prayer has been heard. Now, this, this is interesting, and we can make a couple guesses from this. Since Zechariah and Elizabeth were childless, they had likely been praying, what, for decades, decades for a child. And their prayer had not once been answered. Not once. 30, 40, 50, however long. And yet they were blameless. And it doesn't tell us if they were still praying this, but we can imagine that was likely on their hearts. And remember, being childless back then was a stigma, especially against the women. They were seen as being at fault. So they'd done something wrong. They were being punished. So this would have been a huge deal. All right. So again, we don't know if they stopped praying, but in either case, the angel says, your prayer has been answered. God has heard you. They were still blameless, even up to that point. He said, you're going to have a son, and you're going to name him John. But the angel's not done. He's got a bigger message. This is going to be huge about this child. This is what he says in verses 14 to 17. He will be a joy and a delight to you. And many people will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So there's, again, there's a lot of stuff in here. Let's take it piece by piece. First off, the angel says, John will be a delight, a joy to his parents. This is likely a reference to how spirit-filled he's going to be. Remember, his parents chose a life of following God. God's laws, his decrees, they would have cherished, they would have loved. Remember, they were blameless their whole life. So to have a child that would be just as dedicated to God, even more so, would have just brought them great joy. I mean, imagine having that and their child runs off, doesn't believe, does all, all kinds of awful things. The exact opposite. He is going to be in line. He's going to be even more so. Again, his parents chose to live that way. They didn't have to do that. That's what they chose to do. Now, the other stuff the angel starts to list has more to do with God's people and the rest of the world. And this is because John is going to play such an important part in laying the groundwork for the salvation. John isn't going to be famous because he's going to be like LeBron James, and that's awesome. It's different. He's going to lay the groundwork for the Messiah. Each one of us here has benefited from what John has done. 
right? So this is monumental. This is like through the ages type of joy. And here's some specific things the angels list that he's going to do. First off, he's never going to take fermented wine or drink. This means that John is going to be what's called a Nazarite. He is going to dedicate his life to God alone. And I mean in every way. Right? He's, he's, uh, and part of that vow is going to be to abstain from alcohol. Now, obviously, there's a lot of things that people do when they are on drink alcohol that they shouldn't. He's, what the saying, it's, this is the way the world lives. He's going to make the choice to live this way. He's going to be in the world, not of it. Right? He's just going to simply follow God. The angel also said, this is really cool, that he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth, before he's even born. Right? None of you have ever seen a child born. I was lucky enough to actually deliver my own son. And when they take their first breath, and what, what God is saying is, the angel is saying is, before he even takes his breath, he's going to be full of the Spirit. Full. I mean, that is such an indication of the plan, plans God has for him and how, how, how important he's going to be. Right? It's just going to have such a great role. But thankfully, uh, the angel keeps speaking. He says, he will bring back many many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. So what this indicates is that God's chosen people, the Israelites at that time, have gone astray. They've gone astray. The people with the temple, the Ark of the Covenant, all that stuff, they've gone astray. And God wants to bring them back. Now, he's not going to send a Gentile to do it, just some average guy named Ryan strolling through there. He's going to send someone special. He's going to have John. And John's going to be a superb example of that. Right? He's going to be the one to refocus the people on God. He's not going to do it with fancy prayers, with all these titles behind his name, fancy clothes, and a fancy temple. What do we know about John? How did he live? He lived in the wilderness. He wore animal skins, probably never shaved. He lived off wild locusts and honey, right? He went completely against the religious establishment. And the reason he was going to do that is it was, and Jesus spoke about this, it was common back then for the high priests, the Pharisees, they dressed in very fancy clothes, very fancy robes. It says at the banquets, they had the best seats, had the best foods. They lived lavish lifestyles. And Jesus also complained about them when they prayed. They made sure they prayed out in the open for everybody to hear. The long, fancy prayers were words like supplication and sanctification. Anybody know what those words mean anyway? It's okay. They were like, they were trying to sound fancy and intelligent. That's what they were doing. And what was John the Baptist going to do? He's going to throw all that away. He's going to live in the wilderness. He's going, to go, he's going to go live by the Jordan River, a river outside, and call people to that river. Say, repent of your sins. Get right with God today. You don't need the temple. You don't need the wash basin. You need all that stuff today. This is what this is about. So that's why John was going to be such a big deal. He was only focused on getting people back to God. And when you step back, when you think about all the pomp and the circumstance, how that would have looked Right? How powerful a message would that would have been? You know, uh, but to make a further uh, distinction, remember, I don't know if you remember this, at the beginning of this, uh, the teaching I talked about King Herod, he made his brother-in-law high priest. Right? His brother-in-law, as high priest, was a political appointee. He'd never been to seminary. He wasn't from a family line. He wasn't from a long line of preachers. He was a political appointee as high priest. So what this, what this would look like today, so imagine... If our head pastor in Melbourne, Calvary Chapel right now, his name's Pastor Dave, what if he was placed there by his brother who was the governor of Florida? Never went to seminary, never met him before, never been to church. Now he's the head. And at one point, him and his brother, the governor, get in an argument, and his brothers, the governor's thugs, have him drowned in a canal. That's what happened with King Herod and his brother. What 
would our church feel like? What kind of a message would be taught in that, a church like that? See, that's the state of affairs back then. That's why Luke includes all this stuff, and that's why we like to include all the other details. Because you imagine if you were truly seeking God, trying to find the right thing, trying to do it right, and that was the church? Would you really have hope? No. That's why John had nothing to do with any of that. I mean, nothing. We don't even know if he ever set foot in the temple. He did everything. He lived in the wilderness, lived outside, called everybody to the Jordan River and says, get right with God today, now. And that's why this is such a full story. It's huge what's going on and why it was such a big deal back then. John wanted simply to get people right with God. That's why he's going to be so impactful. The other thing is to mention, if you imagine Zechariah was actually a good example. He was blameless, but he likely would have been one of the few priests that were actually doing things right. He would have been on the minority compared to all the others. He would have stood out. But he still had to operate in that framework. But here's what's cool. God didn't turn his back on his people. He never did. He still had a plan. He was going to use John the Baptist to lay some groundwork to bring back people to lead the way for Jesus Christ. So that's a lot of information that the angel just gave to Zechariah, but that was actually what was going on, and that's what's happening. So, of course, Zechariah, when he gets the news about his wife is going to have a son, John, what does he say? Awesome, thank you, I totally believe you. Did he say that? No, he did not. Even though Zechariah was a good, upright man, and again, blameless, big word, he was still human. He was still very much susceptible to doubt, fear, couldn't see the bigger picture sometimes. Anybody guilty of that? Yeah, me, totally. But this is the reason why Luke included this part of the story as well. Not only, not only do we get to see God's plan unfold, we get to see real people, how they react to it. Sometimes good, sometimes bad. Truth is, sometimes somewhere in between. Or just a little messy. All right, let's read the next part, verses 18 to 20, and it's going to tell us how he really responds. Verse 18, Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent, not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. So first off, I don't know if it slipped by, but... uh, Zechariah, I need to point out what a gentleman Zechariah is. Notice he says, I am an old man, but my wife is well along in years. He would never say that his wife is old. (laughs) He's a very smart man. Again, he is what? Blameless. Yeah. Actually, to be perfectly honest, my wife, that's her joke. She's the one that pointed it out to me. Like, oh, you're right. So she gets credit for that. Now, the next thing we notice is that Zechariah had some difficulty with what the angel told him. Again, no, you notice he didn't come out and say, no way, I don't believe you. It's impossible. He said, how can I be sure? Which kind of almost slightly seems maybe he believed a little bit, but he was totally not all the way there. And notice his hesitation. He says, listen, I'm old. My wife's well along in years. How is this going to happen? So he's actually being practical. He's not unreasonable. That's actually a very reasonable, sensible answer. What he's saying is making sense. The problem is he's putting human minds, our intentions, our beliefs on what's possible above God. 
All right? But notice how the angel Gabriel responds. He immediately, I mean immediately, takes everything straight to God. He says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I did not come here to have a discussion. God sent me to tell you something. I am here. Gabriel is forcefully reminding him that this is going to happen whether he likes it or not. And then because of Zechariah's disbelief, he tells him, and now you are going to be silent. You're not going to be able to speak until this happens. So what's unique about this situation, Zechariah was terrified, right, in the face of this angel, but there was still an obligation, a requirement to believe. There was not an option. This was not a discussion. This is what's happening. Now, this also kind of, again, i got to highlight, because this is how my mind works when I think of this. This is Zechariah. Again, he's, and I, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but the, to understand the, how impactful, how crazy this whole event is, Zechariah, he's from the whole, his, in Israelites back to time, that was their whole life. Like, we have our lives and we go to church. Their whole life was known because they were Jewish, they were Israel. that is their life, the temple, the religion, they, they, that's who they are. He's serving in the temple. He's from the line of kings, and Moses, all that stuff. Altar of incense, he's there. He gets a visit from an angel. He's completely terrified. And then what does he say? I'm not sure if I believe you, though. <laughs> I mean, wrap your head around that for a second. You see an angel, and you're like, Wah! freaking out. They tell you something, and your first response is, You got a little proof for that? I mean, that is just, to me, that is mind-blowing. You put all those pieces together. He should believe anything, considering where he is and what he's doing, right? I don't care what. Yes. Okay, fine. He actually, he's so human, he has has the hubris or whatever to go, yeah, a little more? I don't believe you. To me, that is just fascinating. But I'm not slamming him. All of us would have our own weird reaction to humans just do that. I mean, but it's funny is they're actually in the temple staring at each other face to face. He's seeing an angel. And my, my, my response to is if you ever see an angel face to face, they know your name and they're talking to you, whatever they say, just go yes. <laughs> you don't have to understand anything. Just go yes. Do not go, I need proof. Let me see the receipt. Because that's what he's saying. But that's what's happening. And that's what's, so, that's what's so interesting. But that's how we tell these stories because he's just as human as us. We place them on pedestals. They do not belong on pedestals. They're just like us. They're just as human. Again, each one of us would have our own silly response. You know what I mean? But what's so great about this is that God used him. God still used him. He had a plan. In spite of his failures, in spite of your failures and your hang-ups and all your weird stuff just like me, God can use you, and he will. God does that because his love for us is real. He is patient. He is kind. He is steadfast. And he will use imperfect people to accomplish his plans. Let's get back to our story. Now, because Zechariah doubted, Gabriel told him he was going to be silent until the baby was born which is actually a really unique punishment. It is. Because not only does he now, after decades and decades of praying, have this great news, he's going to be a father. He can't tell anybody. 
He can't. He can't speak. Sign language hadn't been invented yet. So for nine months, nine months, he cannot explain the details of what happened because he doubted. So now our story is also going to take kind of a unique turn because while Zechariah was in the temple and had all this vision, he can't speak. The people outside notice he's been in there a little too long. He's in there too long. We don't know how long it took to burn the incense, 30 minutes, an hour, whatever. Whatever the time frame was, Zechariah was in there too long and people began to notice. And they got worried. And if you remember, if you know your Bible history, specifically in the temple, there were areas of the temple you could not go. Outside, the far outside, anybody could go outside the walls. Once you get inside, it was broken up into areas. You get a little further, you have to be a priest. You go into the Holy of Holies, you have to be the, the high priest only once a year. Otherwise, if you didn't do anything right, what happened? You died. So now he's in there too long. What do you think people think? <laughs> now, here's what's interesting. Let's read this, and we're going to go into it for a second. Uh, verse 21, 22. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering what, why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. So again, remember, they were concerned he had been in there too long. But notice how many people ran in there to find him. <laughs> Donut. Nobody. Why? There's things that you just don't do. You things that you simply can't do. There were zones. Everything was broken up. It had always been that way. No one went in. They just simply were like, no, nah, we'll wait. We'll see what happens. See when he comes out. They took that seriously. They know the history just like we do. But thankfully, at one point, Zachariah comes out and like, Whew, what happened? start writing on the ground. He can't tell them anything. Can you imagine having seen that and not having a way to describe it? That's what happened. He saw an angel. He's going to have a son. His, his, his son. It's not just a son. What's his son going to do? Pave the way for the Messiah. He can't tell anybody. Not a thing. Let's continue our uh, reading. Uh, verse 23 to 25. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. So he had to stay there until his time was done. He couldn't go home yet. I mean, he couldn't tell his wife anything regardless, but he couldn't even go home. So verse 24, after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. So again, after Zechariah is finished with his time in the temple, he returns to his wife. In time, she becomes pregnant, just like Gabriel had said. The text tells us that she remained in seclusion for five months after she discovered she was pregnant. Now, the exact reason, it doesn't tell us, but we can make some safe assumptions. Likely, she was just as devout and blameless before God. So while Zechariah left and spent his time in the temple in worship and prayer and doing his job, she would have done the same thing in her own way. She would have spent her time in seclusion praying to God, being thankful, spending time with God. Again, remember, they were devoted. They were blameless. There's a reason I keep using that word. That is a huge word. Being childless all that time would not have been easy for her. 
And so her prayers were answered. And she devoted just as much time. And I think that's, that, that's a beautiful way to kind of bring the story around and show that actually also that true worship can happen anywhere. Anywhere. It was a common belief back then among Israelites and even other religions that only true worship could happen on this hilltop, at this shrine, at the temple in Jerusalem. I mean, the other one's kind of, you know, but this is where it's really good, right? They had that belief. But we know Jesus taught the exact opposite. John the Baptist did the exact opposite. When Jesus met the woman at the well, there's a story where they're having this discussion. He says, listen, you people think it has to be on this hill, it has to be over here, whatever, whatever. He said, but a time is coming when people will worship the Lord in truth and righteousness. These are the people that God seeks, which means you just simply worship wherever you are. Do it from your heart. Do it for real. People, Jesus even told the disciples, he told people how to pray. He says, when you do this, go up to your room, close the door, pull down the curtains, and do it for real. Just pray from your heart. It, no one needs to see, no one needs to know, because that's, when you do that, that's when you're praying for real, when it matters, from your heart. Take all your cares to him and let him speak to you. And, that, and what's really cool is Elizabeth, that is what she was doing all her life and now for the next five months in seclusion, she's just praying and worshiping God. That's a great, great example for us to follow. But now, now that we've come to the end of the teaching for today, there's a couple things we all need to take from this. Number one, the reason Luke and the other writers of the books of the Bible, the reason they put all this extra information in there about the people around them, about side, outside of the main characters, is so that we can learn from them so that we don't put them on pedestals like we do. Like when I remember when I was a kid, even in college reading, reading about Peter, the disciples, you're like, oh my gosh, can you believe what they did? What? That's not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to read their failures, parts that they didn't do good. Part where Peter, when he got scared, what did he do? He denied Jesus three times just to save his skin. He denied it from a young girl, not even a dude with soldiers with, you know. They're human. And that's what we, want to, we need to learn from that. What we can learn also from their acts of faith, that God can do amazing things through imperfect people. When we're weak, when we're scared, and we have doubts, that's just like Peter. We have doubts. When we say stupid things, that's Zechariah. You're no different. The second thing we need to take from this is our God is extraordinary. He's not like anyone else. He's not like any other God. There's no religion like this. Because he takes people like us and he changes the world. 100%. Each one of us, he can use us. When we are weak, he is strong. He can do anything. And here's the best part. When he uses us in our failures through our weaknesses, we then become examples for other people. Other people can see what God did through us. And it helps them in their faith. So there's, there, there, there's, like, there, there's a beauty to it. But that's why he does that, because he can. That's why the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth is a great story. It shows people with faith and persistence who are imperfect can do great things. And God is who he says he is. So this morning, if anyone here has not accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you don't know him, we want to give you that opportunity. In a minute, we're going to say a prayer. All you have to do is say the words right after me. You can do it quietly to yourself. What you say is between you and God. But we want to give you that opportunity. And also, if you're struggling in your faith, if you're hitting one of those down spots, we've all been there. We're going to pray for that too, okay? And at the very end of the service, if you would like to stay behind, if there's anything we can personally pray for you for, please do that. That's what we're here for. It'll be our honor. 
That's what the church is here for, okay? Let's bow our heads and let's pray together. Father, I believe in your Son, Jesus Christ. I believe he died on the cross for my sins, and I believe that you raised him from the dead. Today I ask Jesus to come into my life and to make me new. I ask him to forgive me, to save me, and to guide my steps for the rest of my life. Father, today we, we pray for strength to endure all trials. May everything we go through, both good and bad, may it strengthen our faith and our resolve, and may we always lean on you. Father, we also pray for all people to come to know you and to place their trust in you. It's only through you and the saving grace of your Son that we have hope. Father, we pray that as our faith grows, as it has its ups and downs, that you will use each one of us as you see fit. Use us to expand your kingdom. We are yours. Father, we thank you for the life that you've given each one of us. We thank you for the church. Most of all, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ. It's his name we ask all these things. Amen. Amen.